Jen here with a quick update for new listeners. Watch with Jen began its life solely on Patreon, and while that's still the first place I publish new episodes, all of which you can listen to as soon as they drop for as little as a dollar a month, once they're unlocked to everyone, you will find them available to listen to here as well. Just a heads up if you wonder why I talk about Patreon so much for the first few shows. Thanks for listening and happy movie watching. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com or at filmintuition on social media and letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. I hope you're all safe and well right now. It's a really scary time, obviously, and it feels like it's been a decade since I recommended five movies last week. And while talking about film sounds pretty dumb in the scheme of things, I think right now the most important thing you can do is stay home, take care of yourself and whoever you're quarantining with, and really just do whatever you need to get through this. Art has always played that role for me, especially film. Martin Scorsese, my favorite filmmaker, called movies his church, and Roger Ebert famously said that movies were a machine that generates empathy. And I think that both are right. It's been cool to see the way that movies bring us together on Twitter, of course, or film Twitter. This is for both better and worse. But people have been finding really creative ways to connect right now at a time when we're all so isolated. In addition to talking about movies with others here, the microphone did arrive, I'm still learning a few things. I'm also planning some tweet-alongs with friends. Hopefully a Robert De Niro one soon. And I just started watching Ozark from a distance with my brother since we knew we liked it, but hardly remember a thing about season one. It's a show on Netflix starring Jason Bateman and Laura Linney. If you like neo-noir, crime thrillers, I think you'll probably enjoy it. Taking the results of the streaming channel survey into consideration, hello subscribers of Hulu, Netflix, and Amazon, which pretty much dominate the pack, along with a really good showing for Criterion, yay. Let's just jump into this week's five. To misquote the joke in Wayne's World, our first movie is on so many streaming services, it's like we were issued it in the mail with samples of Tide. Jeff Who Lives at Home, which came out in 2011, is a wonderful film that you can find on Amazon Prime, Crackle for free, and also for free on Hoopla and Canopy through your library. The film was made by Jay and Mark Duplass, also known as the Duplass Brothers. They got their filmmaking chops in what is now known as mumblecore, which is a horrible term that was used to describe kind of the shoestring budget movies that people made with really crappy sound. So people were always talking in the film and you could barely hear what they were saying, hence the term mumblecore. And Jay and Mark Duplass made The Puffy Chair, which was one of the films in it. They were also involved in some other people's movies, including Hannah Takes the Stairs with Greta Gerwig. They went on to make some really great films that were not in this horribly named movement. I highly recommend 
the film Cyrus with John C. Riley, Marissa Tomei, and Jonah Hill. It is hilarious. Also, the Dodeca pentathlon, which is about two brothers who take part in this stupid pentathlon that they make, and it's a kind of a commentary on what it's like to have a competitive streak with your sibling, which anyone with a sibling knows what that's like. You love them, you hate them, but they're yours. And these two complement each other well. You can see the strengths of both of them. And Jeff Who Lives at Home is no exception. Like their other films, it centers on a tight-knit family or in this case, a family that's tight, but also kind of estranged. And in this case, Jason Siegel from How I Met Your Mother and The Muppets plays Jeff, who lives at home, of course, in his mom's basement. He's 30 years old, unemployed, directionless, kind of just waiting for something to happen. He has been asked at the beginning of the film to run an errand for his mother, played by Susan Sarandon, but he first gets a wrong number call for Kevin. And when he gets on the bus to go on this errand, he sees a man with a jersey with the word Kevin on it. So he starts to follow him and it leads to all kinds of adventures. He's not the only one having a very eventful day. At work, his mother is receiving emails from a secret admirer, and she's going to get to the bottom of who that person is by the time the day ends. At the same time, Pat, played by Ed Helms, the first celebrity that I ever interviewed in person, is Jeff's go-getter brother, who is having a tough time with his wife because... He went out and bought a Porsche they cannot afford. He's a salesman, kind of entitled, and he sees his wife, played by the lovely Judy Greer, who I always think should be the leading lady in a movie instead of always just the supporting player. But he sees her with another man and decides to follow her, much like Jeff followed Kevin, to see what will happen. One of the things I love about the Duplass films is the way that they champion the extraordinary in the ordinary and every day's opportunity to change your life, how a simple errand can suddenly change your outlook, or in Sarandon's case, maybe somebody she didn't really look at twice suddenly becomes the person she can't live without, or in Ed Helms' case, Maybe it's the person you live with and the person you take for granted really opening your eyes to something and making you think that you need to change or find a new start. At the beginning of the film, Jeff starts talking very animatedly about the movie Signs and how that film by M. Night Shyamalan works. And it acts as sort of a little bit of signposting, but a cool film geek example, and lets you know how to interpret the first part of the movie, which seems sort of aimless. But as much as it meanders from a traditional narrative or the type of storytelling that we might be used to, by going and following all of these little mini signs throughout the way, we start thinking like the characters. And it never fails to keep us involved in the film. And the Duplass brothers are great at that. 
that sort of storytelling also shows up in some of the films they've written for others. It also is what they gravitate to as actors. Both of them are very talented actors. Jay, of course, is extraordinary on Transparent. He was also excellent in a movie Lynn Shelton made called Outside In that Jay did write with Lynn Shelton. It stars Edie Falco as well, and I highly recommend it. It's also available on Netflix. Mark Duplass by far is the more familiar actor. You've seen him in everything from TV's The League to The Morning Show and beyond. He was also very good in another film you can find on Netflix called Creep, which certainly destroyed his nice guy image. And I think he relished that because he did come up with the story for the film. And... I think this film also acts as sort of a balm right now. It's soothing. Interestingly enough, it was one of the movies that was showing in hospital, like, all the time. About a decade ago, I started to get sicker with the start of, like, an autoimmune issue where every system was doing something different. And when they were still trying to figure it out, and believe me, they still are, I was in the hospital way too much. And one of the films that was showing all the time, because they do have sort of on the TV, like a dozen movies that you can choose from. I remember watching Moneyball way too much and Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, which is still my favorite. But Jeff Who Lives at Home was one of the films. And I kept coming back to that again and again. And I, I remembered it when I was looking at movies this week to decide what one to choose. And I thought, this is a film that is soothing. It's a comfort right now. And... I really think it's something that you should put on maybe at the end of the day when worries seem to get the worst. There's been too many news stories throughout the day and you're just like, oh my god, I know a lot of people are suffering insomnia right now and I think this might be a nice way to unwind. So I really hope you enjoy Jeff Who Lives at Home. As Angelina Jolie fully admits, she was just being playful when she told Sony Pictures co-chairman Amy Pascal that she wanted to be the next James Bond in the franchise. However, anyone who has been following the more playful side of the Oscar winner's career from all the way back to Gone in 60 Seconds up through Lara Croft Tomb Raider, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, and Wanted knows that aside from Kill Bill's Uma Thurman, and Charlize Theron, of course. If there's any woman who can pull off Bond, it's probably Angelina Jolie. And sure enough, Amy Pascal found her an action role that allows her the opportunity to have as much fun as a man does with the stunt work galore in Philip Noyce's over-the-top but entertaining as hell, Salt, which you can find for free right now on IMDb TV. It was one of my favorite action movies of the summer of 2010. Incidentally, my other favorite was Night and Day, starring Tom Cruise and Cameron Diaz. Both of these films didn't do as well as they were hoping, and both of them I still love to watch. Interestingly enough, Salt was supposed to star Tom Cruise. And when he backed out, citing too many similarities with his Mission Impossible franchise, 
they just changed the name from Edwin to Evelyn. And Angelina Jolie stepped right into the role. She plays a CIA agent who finds herself on the run from colleagues when a Russian defector shows up out of the blue and outs her as a sleeper spy from Mother Russia. Completely cornered and taken aback, she goes on the run, escaping from the CIA. And that's where the stunt work from her longtime stunt coordinator, Simon Crane, comes into play. She goes from being Spider-Man, climbing up buildings, to that old video game Frogger across a highway when she actually has to go onto a truck. It's amazing that she did all of these stunts. The special effects work, I guess, was pretty minimal there. The film does feel very M.I. and also Jason Bourne-like, and that's really no accident. It was edited by John Gilroy, who edited the Bourne legacy and everything from Suicide Squad to Rogue One, Michael Clayton, Nightcrawler, and also Stuart Baird, who was the editor on Superman, Lethal Weapon 1 and 2, and also James Bond's Casino Royale and Skyfall. Incidentally, those are my two favorite Salt co-stars, Liev Schreiber and Chuatella Giafor. It was written by Kurt Wimmer, who wrote the Thomas Crown Affair remake. Great movie. And he also wrote a really fun one called The Recruit with Al Pacino and Colin Farrell that I actually watched last year. I'd seen it before at the theater, but hadn't seen it since. And it was a blast. I kind of watched two Colin Farrell movies sort of in a row that I hadn't seen in years. So The Recruit and also In Bruges, which I love, and started to do little tweet-alongs of those. And The Recruit was a lot of fun. It was amazing because I found a Blu-ray with the shrink wrap still on it. I must have been sent it for a review at a time when I was sent way too many things. So it was just unopened. Unfortunately, that isn't the most uncommon thing. I have a lot of screeners that I still need to dig into and I'm working on it. The movie was directed by Philip Noyce who made one of my favorite 80s thrillers called Dead Calm with Sam Neill, Nicole Kidman, and Billy Zane. Never want him on a boat. What is it with Billy Zane and water, by the way? The dude is in so many movies where he's in the water, and every single one of them, he is dangerous. Philip Noyce also directed Patriot Games and Clear and Present Danger. So he has that whole Tom Clancy, Jack Ryan thing going on. And Salt at times does have that sort of feel. It's very much a hybrid, I guess you could say, of Mission Impossible, the Bourne movies, little Jack Ryan. And also it's a paranoid, admittedly like nonsensical at times. Like you don't want to think about the logic too long. Otherwise you'll find so many holes you can drive a truck through it. (laughs) But Noyce handles everything very well. And I'm a person who enjoys a good paranoid thriller. No Way Out is incredible. The old 80s movie with Kevin Costner, which I think is showing on a few streaming services for free. So if you haven't seen it, do check it out. And I think actually Salt would make a great back-to-back movie with not only the franchise pictures I was telling you about, but also No Way Out. 
Or if you want to go the Philip Noyce route, you can also rent Dead Calm. It was shot by Robert Elswit, who is Paul Thomas Anderson's longtime, though now off and on, cinematographer. I guess he was comparing their relationship to a marriage, and they basically broke up a few years ago or had a mini divorce. Elswit's cinematography is just always breathtaking. He shot Magnolia, Boogie Nights, Hard Eight all the way up through Punch Drunk Love and There Will Be Blood, Inherent Vice. He also shot a few films for George Clooney, including Good Night and Good Luck. And so the pedigree of people working behind the scenes and in front of the camera makes it insane that Salt did not do better. But then again, it's a female-led action movie and just like Atomic Blonde with Charlize Theron, which came out a few years ago and is amazing. Check that one out as well. Unfortunately, if a woman is kicking ass, I guess it's just not the audience draw. It should be. Oh, well, so it can be a word of mouth hit later on. You can be like the cool one among your friends, I guess. That's the upside is you can get people interested in this movie that really deserves it. It's just a lot of fun and you think you're going to get a kick out of this one. If you're a fan of Jan Troel's 1971 film series, The Emigrants with Liv Ullman, or Sarah Plain and Tall, perhaps, then I think you will really enjoy our third film, which is Sweetland from 2005. That is Sweetland as in two words instead of one. And it's available right now on Amazon Prime Video. Since we're ordering everything right now, mostly from Amazon, might as well use their video service. The movie was written and directed by Ali Salem. I hope I'm saying that correctly and was based on the short story A Gravestone Made of Wheat by Will Weaver. It was a hit on the film festival circuit where it won Best Actress Award for Elizabeth Reeser, three audience awards at various festivals, and Salem won Best First Feature at the Independent Spirit Awards as well. Sadly, it's the only film he has made Uh, He went to TV right after this and has not made another film. The movie centers on a German mail-order bride, played by Elizabeth Reeser. Her name is Inga in the film. And she journeys to southern Minnesota in the 1920s to wed a Norwegian farmer, played by Tim Guinea. Only when they go there with the farmer Olaf's best friend, played by Alan Cumming, the minister... John Hurd, as in the dad from Home Alone, or the duplicitous husband in Deceived, which you should see totally, refuses in Sweetland, he refuses to conduct the ceremony and wed the two people because she's German and there's a lot of prejudice because of the war. So she's left to just go back home with Olaf. And the two live together in the small farming community, which, as they grow to know her, must confront their own prejudice. The movie itself was bookended by Inga's death, though there's a young Inga and an old Inga in the film. The death takes place in the 1960s. 
And while the movie takes a little time to get into because the beginning is admittedly melancholy and Sweetland does jump it back and forth in time, so it takes a little bit to get going. But stay with it because it's beautiful once we settle into the extended flashback for the rest of the film and we become just absolutely enchanted by all of the characters and the gentle romance and interaction that develops. Selim himself is the son of a first-generation immigrant. He's a Minneapolis, Minnesota native, so shout out to him. I am as well. And he wanted to fill the film with just complete authenticity in what it would be like in the 20s in southern Minnesota. I've driven in southern Minnesota and seeing just rows and rows of farmland as far as the eye can see, it did bring back a lot of memories of especially the time I went down to Winona, Minnesota, which was the birthplace of Winona Ryder, by the way, and was going there just to check out what that college would be like. It was not one I wound up attending. I went to a few different colleges until I found one that worked for me, and it just put me right back into the mindset of being a younger woman, seeing just Minnesota farmland more than the suburbs or downtown Minneapolis. And the movie is also extraordinarily shot by David Tumbley. His sweeping cinematography in the film is just jaw-dropping, and it reminds me of the cinematography from Terrence Malick's Days of Heaven, which I bet was a pretty big influence on the movie. While, of course, Malick's film is, you know, a classic an end-all be-all. This is a great one as well. I mean, there's some problems with the structure, sure, but it's engrossing, it's interesting, it's a gentle people mover, to use the name of that ride from Disney. And I think it's another one that, like Jeff, who lives at home, might be a good one to watch at the end of the day. And it's a good reminder of people coming together, and it's also just beautifully done. After Pulp Fiction, we had to suffer through years of filmmakers trying to recreate the magic that was the screenplay to Pulp Fiction, which is one of the first ones I remember getting, along with When Harry Met Sally and Taxi Driver, and yes, I was a weird kid who collected screenplays. But crime films became like a niche, and the niche in the 90s was... Tarantino-esque movies with too many hitmen who discuss the minutia of pop culture, couples dancing to surf music for no reason whatsoever, and it took a while for it to rebound. I still miss erotic thrillers from the 80s because they're usually the ones that let women do interesting things, but crime films did stage a comeback, sort of, and have continued to rise. Unfortunately, they're often overlooked because of all these damn superhero movies. But over the last decade, there have been some wonderful, overlooked, critically acclaimed, but just didn't really catch fire or haven't been explored yet by the audience at large thrillers. Some strong, inventive ones. And when I wrote about our next film, which is Cop Car, from 2015. It's one you can find on Netflix. I compared it to a few of these thrillers that I'm talking about, other neo-noir movies like The Gift, 
or Blue Ruin and Cold in July. The one I was missing from my review, because I don't think I had seen it yet, was The Guest. And I'm, I'm mainly here just talking about movies that came out in 2014, 2015, around the time that Cop Car was released. The film is by John Watts. It was written by Watts and Christopher Ford. They'd written together on various TV projects, Eugene, The Fuzz, and also a movie called Clown, and then Cop Car came about, and then later they wrote the new Spider-Man Homecoming. In Cop Car, two bored runaway kids play a game of gradually escalating dares and they soon find in the middle of a Colorado field what they think is a seemingly abandoned squad car. And since they're playing games as it is, they're applying the rule of finders keepers to this car. So they take it on a joyride. It's very funny to watch these two try to like figure out how to get in the car, what to do to make it drive. The only thing is, it stays cute and funny for a few minutes until we learn what they don't, which is who the car really belongs to, and ultimately who will come looking for them, which is Kevin Bacon's conniving sheriff with his head on a swivel throughout the whole movie, who is just up to no good. It's another one of those Kevin Bacon is so great when he's bad movies. It reminded me of The River Wild in that respect, especially his great line when he says, I am a nice guy, just a different kind of nice guy. And I don't even know that I would call him a nice guy here. Of course, I wouldn't call him that in River Wild, but he's an interesting one. It's fast-paced by necessity and design, so there's so much going on in Cop Car that we sometimes will miss little context clues in the camera angles, which call attention to the trunk at one point, or it starts to foreshadow things in interesting ways. They use the camera very effectively in the film. It's a talent and it's a gift and it's a skill that not too many people have, or at least early on in their careers. So it was cool to see that John Watts had it all along. He knew exactly the the right angles and shots and what he wanted to do to build suspense. The film has traces of Duel, Stand By Me, and Blood Simple, among a few other films in its structural, spiritual, and stylistic DNA, but it's never derivative. It's its own thing as well. The one thing I really appreciated about Cop Car was that the children in it were realistic. They didn't suddenly turn into the kids from Kick-Ass, and their reactions in the film by John Watts are natural and it's terrifying when Kevin Bacon, the dominant, brilliant Kevin Bacon, starts to hone in on the kids and try to get the car back. Another thing it has going for it is that it doesn't rely on special effects or any kind of extreme action set pieces. It builds tension just by situation and uses real life in a haunting way that kind of reminded me a little bit of, again, Spielberg's Duel. It's one that definitely deserves a bigger audience. And I have noticed an increase in clicks on the review, 
which makes me think that it playing on Netflix has been a great thing. So I'm hopeful that it will become a new contemporary classic soon, and then maybe in the future, strong other independent thrillers or neo-noir movies will learn a few things from this one. And so film's influence from one generation to the next generation continues on. And it's a great film that I'm sure you're going to recommend to other people, probably now virtually. I know that Netflix did add some new feature called like Netflix Party that will let you watch a movie on your account and link up to a friend and a chat box pops up, I believe, on the right side of the screen from the pictures, and you can just chat along with the film. I wouldn't really recommend that the first time you watch Cop Car because you really want to pay attention, and anyone using a second screen is not giving a movie it's all their all. But it might be a fun one to watch if you've seen it before or to get scared together. Also, just use the feature to find new ways to keep in touch virtually. My brother is way ahead of me on Ozark, so we didn't bother doing Netflix parties since he's um, back in Minnesota and I'm here in Phoenix, Arizona. So we're just using text, but it's cool that Netflix is embracing the future of, of digital connection and it'll be cool to see what they think of next. As long as it isn't, of course, the ability to watch the movie at like twice the speed which they were playing with. And luckily they axed that idea because, oh my god, can you imagine people trying to watch like The Irishman or Marriage Story or any of their really powerful movies at twice the speed? It's so stupid. But at least they got rid of that and they're still trying to innovate and... Looks like Netflix Party is a great option for that. If you've used it, you can go ahead and comment on this post on Patreon and maybe let other people know your experience or any other ones that you have or anything you're doing to kind of watch a movie and stay in touch with others. So the bottom line is I hope that film is bringing you together and entertaining you right now. And Cop Car is... A definite contender for that. If I were to ask a room full of people what the first thing they think of when they hear the word musical is, I think most would probably tell me it's Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers dancing together, Gene Kelly sprinting across the screen, or jumping onto that lamppost and singing in the rain, or the teenagers running towards you in West Side Story or Julie Andrews and all of the Von Trapp kids riding bikes while singing and the sound of music. And even when you think of those, the style of film from one to the next is very, very different, which kind of proves that while people might like to throw musical into one little box, and I know many people that do, it's an ever-changing thing. Like the Western. Westerns are basically the grandfather of crime films. Musicals have evolved so much. I mean, think of Cabaret, and then you think of Meet Me in St. Louis, starring Liza Minnelli from Cabaret's mom, Judy Garland. Those two films are completely different. 
And then of course we had rock docks like The Last Waltz from Martin Scorsese, which is my personal favorite, or Jonathan Demme's brilliant Stop Making Sense. And the genre keeps evolving. About 15 years ago though, a new subgenre started to emerge. It focused more on the creation of music than uh, the performance of it. The performance, of course, is important, but it almost matters less than the experience of recording it or collaborating on the perfect song. The films kind of might have been inspired by Cameron Crowe's Almost Famous, which is my favorite Crowe film, in that it lets you into the band for a few hours, but they go a step further than Almost Famous because that film puts you more in the mindset of the young journalist, and this one just makes you a member of the band. I'm talking about Brett Haley's Hearts Beat Loud, which came out in 2018, and it's a film you can find on Hulu. It seems to be the next film that kind of came out of this subgenre that emerged when John Carney made Once about a dozen or so years ago and then he went on to make Begin Again and Sing Street which weren't as successful as Once but are really well worth seeing. Those films championed the art of making music and the lightning strike that can happen when you think of the perfect hook or the right the right key or the right lyric. But while those movies focused more on strangers that become friends and bandmates or bandmates and their plight to make music, in Hearts Beat Loud, our band, which isn't even really a band at the beginning of the film, is made up of none other than a father and a daughter who use music as their way of sort of communicating with one another. The film stars Nick Offerman from Parks and Recreation as a widowed father who owns a failing record store in Red Hook, New York, and his brainy 17-year-old daughter is played by Kiersey Clemens, who was so good in Dope. It's the last summer before she's going to trade Red Hook for UCLA Medical School. And they begin to take their music a little bit more seriously, especially after Offerman puts a track that they create together when they're jamming, which they do often, onto Spotify, and it picks up some traction. Less about them trying to really make it as a band than just using music as a way to express themselves. During the same fateful summer, his daughter falls in love with Sasha Lane from American Honey, which is another great film. And Offerman also has to face the possibility of his store closing. So it's a film about loss and possibility and learning to say goodbye and when goodbyes are final or when they're temporary. It also co-stars Tony Collette and Ted Danson. It might sound a little heavier than it is, but it's not. It's just a warm hug of a movie. It's very affectionate. Just a film you're going to watch and smile. 
pretty much the whole way through, which is exactly what we need right now. It was one of my favorite films from 2018, definitely in the top 10. I don't think I put together a list that year, but it would be up there. It was also the favorite film that year of my friend Mariah Gates, known as Old Films Flickr on Twitter and Instagram and throughout social media. And she has impeccable taste, so you can trust her on this film as well. Writer-director Brett Haley had flirted with original songs and musical moments in his two previous pictures to Hearts Beat Loud, The Hero with Sam Elliott, and especially in the moving ensemble dramedy I'll See You in My Dreams, which you should really seek out with Blythe Danner and Martin Starr. But this film gave him the opportunity to fully embrace the genre that made him fall in love with theatrical storytelling back in high school. So it's a feel-great independent film, definitely from the musical genre, which shows that this genre is always evolving and is never just one thing. One of those coming-of-age movies, not only for the young woman played by Kiersey Clemens, but also for Nick Offerman's character as well, as he has to figure out the next part of his life. It's a hopeful film, and one that I'm sure will resonate with many. By the way, Hulu has an amazing selection of film. When I was looking for movies to select this week, Choosing movies is never the problem. I have a list that's like three miles long. It's narrowing it down to which five at which time. And when it came to Hulu, I had a list that was just one film after another. So if you do subscribe to Hulu, you're in luck right now because it is great movie central for quarantining people. And I have a lot of titles from Hulu that I plan to recommend over the next several episodes as well. Well, that wraps up this week's five recommendations. I hope you have a safe and calm week or as peaceful as we can right now because I think we're in for the long haul. And I hope you have some creative things planned. Or if that just even seems too much for you right now, then I hope you just look after yourself and do what you need. Read some good books, watch some great movies, listen to music. Art is very therapeutic. It's also incredibly inspiring. I, for one, plan to do all of the above and also experiment a little bit more with my technical setup and see if I feel comfortable enough or capable enough to invite somebody on. I've experimented with a few things so far, but definitely need to do a little bit more because the last thing I want to do is have somebody on and then have to hit them up again like, oh my god, it didn't record and make them tell me the same few things again, which would be really obnoxious. Luckily, as a film writer, I've never had that happen in an interview. I think the most embarrassing thing that happened was once when I was speaking with Rachel Lee Cook, my phone just cut out and hung up on her. 
I guess, or we somehow got disconnected. I was using this new thing where you basically plugged your phone system into the wall from T-Mobile and it would just drop out on occasion and it did it with her. That's before I knew it had that capability or I should say that fault. And she was so sweet. She actually called me right back and we wound up talking like 20, 30 minutes longer because she's also from Minnesota and we chatted. But the last thing I want to do is invite people on and like make them babysit me through this because I'm a little bit of a perfectionist. Everybody knows I'm pretty type A. And so while you can't be perfect all the time, of course, I mean, oh my God, I make so many mistakes. But I just want to make sure everything is working well enough before... I hit somebody up. I have like five or six people lined up, some really cool people. I've got two crime writers. I've got an artist, a fellow journalist, and another film lover. So I think we have a pretty cool lineup. And I'm definitely looking to bring more people on. And I've got my sights set on several others that I would love to ask if all goes well in the meantime. So I hope you wish me luck on that. I'm still trying to figure out if they should just like recommend two or three movies so I don't make them talk about all five or if I should just have like an extra episode where just ask them what they're streaming and talk about whatever when it comes to film. That could be fun too. So if you have a preference or an idea as far as that's concerned because this is all new and the format is up in the air, go ahead and leave a comment below. Hit me up on Twitter or send me a message. It's up to you. And again, I'm really just hoping to help find a way to distract all of you and make what's going on a little bit easier to bear with some wonderful art. And that really does it for this week. Take care, everyone. I am Jen Johans at filmintuition.com or filmintuition on social media and letterboxed. And this is Watch With Jen.